well. Really good to see all of you here. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to find your Bibles, one of the things that's become abundantly clear is that Americans are angry. I mean, anger seems to be the raging emotion that is taking place. Uh, It really, right now, we're living in some of the worst civil unrest that we have ever faced, at least for decades. It all gets started with uh, a rogue officer bringing about the death of George Floyd. With that then becomes all of these issues of racism that that existed but now are just even brought to the forefront. And then you combine that then with... There were certainly many peaceful protests, but things that just ramp out of control with riots, violence, businesses that are destroyed. And then, of course, there's, it seems like the common response to all of this is, is anger. And then there's even the risk misreporting. I mean, you don't really seem to know the full story. You got narratives that are out there, but till you talk with people that actually live in some of these communities and see firsthand, you're just like, whoa, what is all going on? And you, Combine this with the reality that we have been living through a pandemic, and it has created all sorts of problems. People that are sick, folks that have died, there's fear, and then, of course, all the economic fallout. And it seems like the response at almost every level with so many people is anger. Anger that the government isn't doing enough to stop this pandemic, Or the government has done way too much and you're creating all this economic havoc and people that without jobs and all the uncertainty and everything that's taking place in our economy. Then there's folks that are just like, they're mad about masks. Because like, who is going to tell me to wear a mask? And then there's other folks that are really mad about folks that aren't wearing the mask. Like, don't you even care about people? Wouldn't you just inconvenience yourself a little bit just to offer a little bit of protection? And that seems like the predominant response in America right now is anger. In fact, you could say that we are living in an incubator of anger. I mean, we've got these four major issues that are superimposed upon one another. You've got the pandemic. You have the economic fallout. You have all the civil unrest. And then you've got all the wildfires in California and the Northwest that are causing significant hardship and have lots of implications for the people living there. And it seems the predominant response right now is anger. And it is so important that followers of Christ actually know how to respond when they see anger and especially when they feel it experienced in their own hearts. Now, I want you to know that we're all very familiar with anger. Um, Some people, anger is almost a way of life. Now, you're most likely not like this guy, uh, Justin Boudin. Um, He's a guy, 25-year-old guy, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, He actually pled guilty to multiple charges of assault for actions that he committed Actually, while he was going, making his way to his anger management class, uh, what, what took place is he's at a bus stop. Um, he starts harassing a 59-year-old lady, and he um, feels like she's not giving him the general respect that he deserves. This lady doesn't know what to do. She's scared. She pulls out her phone. She starts calling 911, and Justin hauls off and hits her right in the face. 
A 63-year-old guy who's watching this tries to step in, and at that point, Justin takes his blue folder that has all of his anger management papers and starts beating the man with his papers, some of which fly out, and that is how the police actually apprehended him. Now, you probably aren't, that's probably not your story, but likely anger has definitely surfaced in your life at different places, at different times, maybe even this week. And I want you to know that some of our deepest disappointments and deepest regrets come from our times of unbridled anger. And yet, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is calling us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we've got to ask, how is that possible when anger is such a significant issue? How do kingdom citizens overcome the anger issues in their life? How is that even possible? I want you to know it's, there's only one way, and that is to have a right relationship with God. That is the only way. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing when you come to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. It's right relationship with God. Now, you need to know, right relationship with God cannot be reduced to rules and following them. That's especially true when it comes to anger. Right relationship with God cannot be reduced to rules just about like murder, for instance. And that's what Jesus is going to address. Look at what he says, Matthew 5, 21. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, Jesus has just literally shocked the Pharisees and the scribes by making this statement uh, in the verse right before when he says, your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes had reduced their religion, Judaism, down to just following rules, having certain routines and rituals. That pattern is so prevalent even today. There's many people that just feel like if you want to have a relationship with God, you just got to follow these rules. There's certain rituals that need to take place. You need to burn some incense somewhere. You need to show up and make some appearances, bow down at the right time. I want you to know that is very prevalent thinking, been around for centuries. But Jesus makes this statement and he says, relationship with God is not based on rules. And this issue of anger, it's not just based on the rule of you shall not murder. There was some uh, five- and six-year-olds here in Sunday school class, and a, um, their teacher was working on the Ten Commandments with them. And they were talking about uh, how important it is to honor your father and mother, which is a very important commandment, right? And so they're working on that. But then uh, the teacher asked, um, is there any commandment that you kids could think of that actually talks about how you might need to treat your brother or your sister? And without missing a beat, one of the little boys said, yeah, Thou shall not kill. That's, that's the one that we're supposed to do. And that's true, right? But interesting that that boy should say that because do you know the very first homicide that ever took place took place in the first family. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain, because of jealousy and anger, killed his brother Abel. Now, um, what we're talking about here when Jesus 
is quoting this. He says, you shall not commit murder. When he's talking about the sixth commandment that you can find, like in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, it's referring to criminal killing. In fact, you can see that uh, there is to be a penalty. The Old Testament carried the death penalty if you killed another individual. Now, there were exceptions to that. When you look at all of Scripture, you can find that uh, the Scriptures are clear that if it's capital punishment, a just war, uh, if it was unintentional or accidental homicide or self-defense, that these things were not referred to as murder. Murder was something that was done with the intentional killing of another individual for personal reasons. And one thing that the Pharisees and scribes thought that they hadn't done, and likely hadn't, is, is probably kill someone. They hadn't murdered. But why is, have you ever thought, why is murder wrong? Why is it wrong? Well, the, you find specific exhortation on this, like beginning in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And it says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for the image of God he made man. You see, there, to assault the individual who is made in God's image is to assault the sacredness of God. Humanity bears the image of God. You kill an individual who bears God's image, a criminal killing, you lose your life by virtue of the fact that life is that precious. Every single person is made in God's image. Now, let me give you like an illustration to help us understand this. So I'm sure you're familiar with like recent reports of what's taking place there with our U.S. ambassador to South Africa, Lana Marks. We have, um, apparently our intelligence has picked up from some time that the Iranians are, have been looking to kill her. But now it's been amped up and they have evidence that they're not just thinking about it. They actually have plans put in place to do it. And so this has hit the news. Now, um, the Iranians, apparently the reason they're doing this is this is in response to the fact that we took out uh, Soleimani, Soleimani, the head of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And this, this guy... He was responsible for at least 17% of the deaths of U.S. personnel in Iraq from 2003 to 2008. We had, at the beginning of this year, with an airstrike at International Baghdad Airport, they were able to take him out. But now you've got a situation where they're looking, certainly at this ambassador, but apparently there are other U.S. ambassadors, to actually assassinate them. Now, to do that, you see... A U.S. ambassador represents the United States. They represent represents the U.S. image. To kill one of our ambassadors is actually an act of war because they represent our government. They represent our country. And to kill an individual who's made in God's image, it's an act of war against God. That's why it is wrong. That's why he has said, you shall not murder. Now, Jesus is quoting the the sixth commandment, but I want you to know that rules, they just reveal the real problem. They can't 
resolve it. You see, if you think that, well, uh, all it does, all it needs for me to address anger issues in my life is just to have the right rule, you're wrong. You can't reduce relationship with God to like a commandment like, you shall not murder. What is needed is that we have to become a disciple of Jesus and allow him to address the anger issues in our heart. So how does Jesus do that? It's not just following rules, but how does Jesus actually address the anger issues in our heart? Well, first thing you need to do is you need to trust him with your life, okay? So like you remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, remember what takes place? Jesus sits down and his disciples come to him. Those who are trusting him, who ultimately are trusting him to be the savior of their life. They are aligning their life, putting their faith in him. You see, when you and I come to a place where we recognize that we are sinners and we're trusting in Christ, we not only experience salvation from sin when we trust in him, we have the privilege of being his lifelong disciple. We enter into discipleship. And what is discipleship? It's the intentional and relational process of maturing as a Christ-centered believer and being mobilized for ministry. That's what God is looking to do in every single life of genuine Christians, is to bring you to the fullness of maturity in relationship with him, like to address issues of anger, and then to mobilize you for ministry. So, what he's doing is he's going to train us and transform us where we're not just being manipulated and living out rage and revenge, but rather we're learning to rest in his righteousness and learning to express it. So how does Jesus address the anger issues in our life? Well, first of all, you got to trust him with your life. But notice what he begins to say in verse 22. You've got to take him at his word. Jesus says this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Do you notice what Jesus says? He says, but I say to you, he shatters the illusion of self-righteousness And he sets himself up as the authority. He is saying, my words that I am giving to you are on equal basis of the scripture that God has already presented. But I say to you, I am the authority. And what he's doing is he's presenting the fact that I am God. But I say to you, and that's what a Christian does. They take him at his word. And he says this, if anyone... Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Someone who is indignant, enraged. Now, that was true of everyone that heard Jesus, right? And that's true of every one of us. Has every one of us, we know all about anger, right? I mean, maybe yesterday you even gave a display of what fireworks really looks like, right? You know what it's like to be indignant and enraged. And Jesus says, you are guilty enough to go to the court, the court of justice, the tribunal. But then he goes on to say, he says, and if whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. The 
Good for nothing is translated for the Greek word raka. It literally means empty-headed. To recall someone like an idiot, uh, someone that's mindless, a blockhead, to do it with anger and vengeance, you're vindictive. He says, you are guilty enough to go to their supreme court, the Sanhedrin, the 70 that were the ruling uh, council in Judaism that dealt with all of the difficult legal matters in Israel. He says, have you ever done something like that? You're guilty before the Supreme Court. And then, then he said this, if anyone calls someone a fool, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Fool. Um, the Greek word moros. It's where we get our word moron. If you have called someone a fool, you're guilty enough to go to hell. You see, in Judaism, your name meant everything. To assault your name was to assault your character. Now, I know that people assault people's names all the time, and we're almost used to it, but this represents that person and their dignity. And to call someone a fool, he said, you'd be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Or maybe your Bible has Gehenna. It's literally the valley of the son of Hinnom. To understand what Jesus is referring to, um, on the west side and the southwest side of Jerusalem was their garbage dump. Prior to it being the garbage dump, there was, this was actually where people would sacrifice their children to the god Moloch. In fact, some of Israel's kings did that. Like you've got like Ahaz that would do that. And, to, and they would literally have their kids placed on these burning stone hands as a sacrifice to this god. Manasseh did that. But when Josiah came, he's like, absolutely not. Killing children? Worshiping these false gods? Absolutely not. And he destroyed the place. And eventually it became their garbage dump. And there was always garbage that was burning. When they would execute criminals, they would throw those bodies into the valley of the son of Hinnom, Gehenna. Jewish writers originally referred to it as like the gate of hell and later just referred to it as hell itself because it gave the people an understanding. This is what hell is like. Burning, putrid, the stench. And Jesus said, if you have called someone a fool, you are guilty enough to go to hell. Now, there's a valid distinction between righteous anger, anger over the sin versus anger over the sinner. Jesus, for instance, was angry with the the leadership of Israel and all their hypocrisy and how they had led the masses astray and turn people against the one true Messiah, him. Paul was angry, a righteous anger, to those who were legalizers and trying to get people back into a rules-based religion. You read about in the book of Galatians. You got David, and you see him writing the imprecatory psalms that are literally calling down God's judgment upon his enemies. There is something to be said about righteous anger to be angry over the things that God is angry for. But so often, that's not our anger, is it? 
Our, our anger is because someone didn't treat us quite the way we wanted. We were easily ticked off. We've been insulted. Someone said something that didn't sit well with us. And what happens is we have real and oftentimes imagined. We take things to an exponential degree. And we lift rage with anger. I want you to know that we're, we're really good at taking like a molehill and making a mountain out of it. And what we'll do is we'll lose our temper. We'll harbor grudges. We will actually assault someone's character. We'll go online. We'll make another Facebook post. We'll send out a text. We'll make a message. We'll talk behind people's back. You know what's actually happening, don't you? It's character assassination. And Jesus said, you do this, you're guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. No one, no one has ever lived a perfect life. When it comes to the issues of anger, we're all guilty. It's very interesting. There's a professor by the name of David Livingstone Smith who wrote this book, Less Than Human. And he really looked at the question, why do even pretty much just normal people sometimes do the most horrific deeds? And from all his research, he found one common ingredient, and that was to dehumanize their victims. He writes this, thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive, but obligatory. We should kill vermin or predators. And then he gave examples from history. So, for instance, the Nazis depicted the Jewish people as rats. What do you do with rats? Catch them. Kill them. Vermin. You get rid of them, right? The Japanese invaders of China killed their victims, and they called them the chankuro, which means like, some, like subhuman, like a bug, like some sort of animal. Uh, prior to the 1994 Rwandan genocide, the Hutus who killed the Tutsis had referred to them as cockroaches. And what do you do with vermin, the subhuman annoyances? Why you get rid of them, right? And so what happens is people forget and they don't see people made in the image of God. And all of a sudden, the worst that resides in a human heart can be expressed. And what Jesus is driving at here is that all of us are guilty. We all need a righteousness that is foreign to us and must be provided for us. And that righteousness is provided for us in Christ. So what do you, how does Jesus address the anger issues in our life? Well, first of all, you've got to trust him with your life. Second, you have to take him at his word. But third, you need to take responsibility for your actions. And that's what Jesus drives at, beginning in verse 23. He says this, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So he says, here's the situation. You've come to Jerusalem. You are here to worship the Lord. You were bringing an offering, an expression of your devotion to the living God. And as you do so, God brings to your mind someone that you have offended, 
someone that you have hurt, you've damaged. He says, what do you need to do? Is you need to set your offering down and you need to go to that individual and make it right as far as is up to you. That's what he's pointing out here. Now, I want you to understand that God will bring matters to mind. Even as we're going through this text, you might have someone, a situation in your mind where you're like, oh, I probably need to actually address that. It's not a probably. You should. You see, our relationship with God directly influences how we interact with others. And so he says, you, you're in a situation where you're bringing your offering to God and you recognize that you're the one at fault and someone really has a legitimate beef with you, you need to address it. And then he gives basically a commentary on that, another example. Look at verse 25. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And so here he's saying this. He's using a common illustration. If you had a debt and you would not pay or could not pay, how it was handled as you were brought to a prison And it was merely a holding place until judgment was coming. And the idea that you're going to spend like months and years in jail and prison, that didn't exist in the time of Jesus. It was merely holding until you actually appeared at a tribunal and then judgment would be made and you're either going to be released because you're found not guilty or you're going to pay for it and it'll be extracted out of your body or if you're going to be executed, whatever it's going to be. But it's going to be quick. And so what Jesus is saying If you're in that situation and you are now making your way to the court, you will do everything you can to make it right. Because once it appeared before a court, there would be no bartering. There'd be no like, oh, I want to work this out now. No, once it appeared before a judge, it was all a matter of law. It was in process. And Jesus says, you know what? I will allow the consequences of disregarding my lead. They had examples of that. They knew about cases just like we do today. And Jesus is saying, listen, you won't follow my lead. You won't listen to what I'm saying. I will allow the consequences of your behavior and your lack of action to actually take place in your life. You see, the time for reconciliation is now. That's true in our relationships with people. That's actually true in our relationship with God. The time for reconciliation is don't wait or I'll put it off or when I get around to it or when I feel better. No, the time is now. You see, when you've got anger issues that are surfacing in your life, they're an indication that something's wrong. It's kind of like that light that shows up on your dash while you're driving and all of a sudden, bling, you know, like service engine now or it starts blinking or it's red or it's got that engine block up there and like, ah, when you see that, here's a hint something's wrong, you need to get that addressed. Don't just keep driving and ignoring it. You're going to have worse problems uh, if, you, if you leave it like that. And same is true with anger. I'll tell you what, anger has all sorts of physical effects. I mean, anything from backaches to headaches, uh, heart attacks, high blood pressure, leads to depression. 
But I, I want you to know that not only does it affect you, it affects your relationships. You and I say some of our harshest things, sometimes the people we even love the most in times of anger. I mean, when we we're angry, whether it be something just like, you know, a coworker isn't pulling their weight, um, someone gets off scot-free, maybe there was uh, a situation at the airport and somehow you got bumped from your flight or the plane's delayed, whatever it is, someone cuts you off in traffic, anger if you allow it to go unchecked, can have significant issues in your life. And it will hurt others, and it can destroy relationships. It can be like a fire. That's why Jesus is saying, you want to address these issues now. You know, Paul wrote about this, about anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, he says, Be angry, and do not sin, and do not give the devil an opportunity, okay? Uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He says, so you're going to be angry. He says, but, but don't let it move to a place where you're sinning and don't let the sun go down on your anger. You want to deal with it right away. Now, there may be some times where you can't actually address all those issues before the sun goes down. Like for Karina and I, we've tried to make this a practice Okay, if there's some anger issues, we need to address it like before the sun goes down, okay? But sometimes the sun goes down, we're still starting to work through that. Uh, Sometimes you just need to get a little bit of sleep. But what you do need to do is you need to make sure that you get it addressed hastily. Don't just let it sit there and simmer. Some bad things will happen. You see, there's one who wants to enter into your relationships. And you see that in the very next verse. That's why he says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Satan would love, just love, to create a division and a wedge and to wreck whatever relationship you might have. And I'll tell you, when you're angry, you make a lot of bad decisions, don't you? You say some things that you really regret. There was a guy by the name of Bob Hutchins. He's a former judo champion from Southern California. He's now a missionary in Mexico. He said, "Uh, actually... I was really just kind of an above-average judo performer until I learned how to make my opponent angry. He says, once I could make him angry, that's when I became a champion. You see, when you're angry, all of a sudden you lose focus as to what you're doing. You're just driven by your rage and your anger. That's why you need to address these things as soon as possible. Because if you don't, you make poor decisions. You overreact. Your discipline with your children isn't going to be right. It's going to be out of proportion. Things aren't going to be correct. You know why? Because anger has taken over. So you've got to take responsibility for your actions. God's spirit will help you. God will guide you. But you've got to address these issues. Take responsibility. If there's forgiveness that you need to extend or ask for, you need to do those things. Let me just give you just some practical points on how to just handle and deal uh, with anger in your life. One, just do this. Just identify your emotion of anger. So when you kind of sense that you're simmering, or maybe someone has pointed this out to you, actually call it what it is. Just say like, hey, whoa, I'm angry about this. Okay, we're all going to be like that, okay? Anger is not a sin per se. 
call it what it is. And then second, just take a minute to calm down. Just even one minute can make a significant difference. But if you're angry, call it, but don't act. Take a minute, pause, hit the pause button. And third, just ask the Lord for strength and guidance, peace and perspective. I can assure you, God wants to help you. Jesus wants to transform you and change you. And he'll give you peace and perspective. He'll give you guidance. So do that. Something else that I found to be really helpful in in dealing with anger is to actually assign whatever the problem is or the issue that's making me angry on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being like, no big deal. Probably won't even think about that tomorrow or the next day. 10 being like, there's been a nuclear explosion in my hometown. Massive deal. By actually assigning a value to the issue or to the problem, what will happen is you will see like, actually, this is a one, two, and three. And if it's really a one, two, or three, then you really don't need to respond to it like an eight, nine, and 10. If you don't assign a value, then pretty much you're like, I'm angry. This makes me mad. Explode, right? Rage. And that's your life. And I want you to know that Jesus wants to change you from the inside out. Like Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's what God wants. He has taken your heart, he has placed his spirit in it, and he wants to bring transformation in your life to free you from living in the bondage of anger to living in the loveliness of Christ. Remember this, the relationship with Christ empowers us to overcome the anger issues in our lives. Years ago, when I was first starting out as a pastor, uh, one of the guys I worked with, um, I, I really enjoyed him. Um, it was great to work just kind of, you know, alongside him. We had a lot of good times together, but um, things kind of changed, though, when uh, all of a sudden he became the guy that I reported to. We uh, approached life very differently. Um, we saw and dealt with problems very differently. We saw ministry, leadership very differently. And I want you to know that it led to conflict. We had multiple difficult conversations. And it really really wasn't working. Now, this guy was quite a bit older than me. And, I mean, it made sense that, you know, I would report to him. But, man, how he'd want to do things and how I thought things should be done were very different. And it wasn't good. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've had situations like this. And so you pray about that and you're asking God. And I became really convicted that I'm the one that needed to change. God had placed him over me. And my job was to submit And my job was to do everything I could to help him be successful, even so far as doing it his way, which oftentimes wasn't my way. So I I met with him, and I told him of my revelation, and I told him, I'm going to do whatever I can to make you successful and to do what you want to do, and I'm even going to try to do it your way. And I did. I fully gave myself to it. And that was all really good, except um, something was really missing. 
I had never actually approached this man and asked for forgiveness for my bad attitude and my lack of respect for his leadership. And I say this to my own shame, but actually it was months until that ever was addressed. A lot of them. Um, As it would be, we both actually moved on to divergent paths and went kind of in different directions. Um, It was months later that I actually had the opportunity to get together with him. And I told him, hey, listen, uh, there's something I need to ask of you. I need to ask for your forgiveness. I had a really bad attitude back there, and I had a lack of respect for your leadership. And, you know, we'd talked about things before, but I, need, I was incomplete. And I asked, would you, would you forgive me? And he was gracious, and, and he did. And, and I want you to know, uh, we're still good friends to this day. In fact, my wife and I, for years, have supported him and his wife as they're on the mission field. But we all have difficulties and disappointments in our life, don't we? Remember this. It's relationship with Christ that empowers us to overcome the anger issues in our lives. And as kingdom citizens, that's exactly what God wants to do. So let's, let's just take a minute just to pray. Would you, 